All right, so uh, welcome everyone. We are started the story of Abraham. And uh, I just wanted to go back for a moment to what we uh, mentioned last week in terms of the placement of the Abraham story, which essentially the first communication to Abraham is in chapter 12. Prior to that, we have the genealogies from Noah through, through, through Abraham. Um, and they are through, the, through one of Noah's sons, which is Shem. And when we get to the ninth generation after Noah, we come to Terach. And that's in chapter 11, in the 26th uh, Pasuk. Terach shivim avram et And we noticed last week that when it comes to Terach, the Torah deviates from its typical pattern. If you look at all the other names, it mentions the person's name. At a certain uh, age, he begat a, ch a child. One child is mentioned. Then how many years he lived after this child was born. And, um, and, he, and he begat sons and daughters. That was, that's the typical of all of them. That's what we have in the Torah in chapter 11 until you get to Terach. Because with Terach, it mentions not just one son, but three. Avram, Nachar, and Haran. It gives us a certain amount of uh, information uh, about them that it doesn't give with anybody else. It tells us Avram's wife and that Haran died in his father's lifetime, etc. We mentioned all that last week. So Terach already is different. And Terach heads out towards the land of Canaan. He's already journeying towards the land of Canaan, leaving Ur Kasdim. He stops in Haran. He dies in Haran. He doesn't go beyond. He started the journey. But there's something else I did not mention last week that I wanted to mention now. And it's very curious. It's in terms of Avram, as he's called, he's still in chapter 12. It's what the Torah does not mention in terms of Avram, namely, with the other avot, and with other people as well, we have the expression, Ela told dot X. We have it with Noach. Ela told dot Noach. We even have it with the, with, with, the, with the world in the beginning of chapter 2. Ela told dot Hashemayim v'yaretz v'hibaram. We have it with Yitzchak. Ela told dot Yitzchak Avraham. We have it with Yaakov. Ela told dot Yaakov. We have it with Yishmael. We have it with Esau. We have it with many characters. But what is very curious is that when it comes to Abraham, we don't have it. We don't have Ewa Todot Abraham. Ewa Todot Avram. It doesn't say it. It's conspicuously missing. But what we do have is Ewa Todot Terach, which would suggest to us that Terach is an important figure. One might say even a kind of patriarchal father of, of Abraham who starts the journey. And that the reason you don't have Ewa Todot Abraham is because we already have Ewa Todot Terach. Now, but of course, it's true that in the rabbinic tradition, uh, so in the primary rabbinic traditions, and we saw this last week, that Terach is seen largely negatively. And the Midrash imports the story of Gidon breaking his father's idols to the story of Abraham. It's not in the text at all. And I suggested last week, even it's a quasi justification for it, namely, 
that Doterach starts off on a good path, he stops for whatever reason. If you focus on the stopping as opposed to the starting, you might read into it something which is not fully positive. Having said all that, so a way to read the Torah is to see it positively. In point of fact, it's very interesting that when we break up the partiot, and it's always an interesting thing to look at how, how our tradition breaks up the, the, the text of the, of the Torah. So we are starting the Torah Sidra of Lechucha with chapter 12. The story of Terach is part of chapter 11, part of the genealogy. And then we start in chapter 12 with Avram. It's a way to underscore the singularity of, 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 of Avraham, the specialness, the fact that in fact, and this is of course is obvious, his name is Avram, exalted father. He's the beginning, he's the father. All that is true. On the other hand, an alternative way to read the Torah is to see Terach as the beginning and to see Avram as a continuation of Terach. He continues the journey, as we mentioned last week. It's interesting, though, that elsewhere, the idea of seeing, seeing Terach in a different light is not limited to the Midrash. We have, for example, uh, at the end of the book of Yoshua, let me find that, that would be in Yoshua, let's find that text. Um, let's find that text. Chapter 24 of Yoshua, the last chapter of Yoshua. Chapter 24, verse number two. It says prior to that, that Yoshua, by Yosef Yoshua, chapter 24, verse one, last chapter of Yoshua, book of Joshua. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel, Shechem, to the city of Shechem. By Yisrael, Rorashav, Shoftav, Shotrav, so he gathers everybody together, the leaders of all the tribes, and he begins to speak to the people. Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, in the olden times, your forefathers, Terach, father of Abraham and Nachar, lived beyond the Euphrates, worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates. I led him through the whole land of Canaan. I multiplied his offspring. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So in those verses, the end of Joshua's speech to all the people, in the last chapter of Yoshua, Terach was an idol worshiper. And perhaps the Midrash, in constructing the story of Abraham and Terach, has that has those verses that famous speech of Joshua in mind? Of course, that speech of Joshua should be familiar, at least that part of it, to all of us, because it is a prominent piece 
of the Passover Haggadah. It's in the Haggadah. It sees the ascent from Egypt, essentially, as a moving away from idolatry. That's what the Haggadah uh, does in those passages, in that part of the Haggadah. But there, at least in those verses, Terach is presented as an idol worshiper. I took Abraham from that area, I took him out, and I brought him to the land of Canaan. It is interesting that that speech that takes place in Shechem. Shechem is a very important place in the Bible. It figures in many, many stories, but it figures in chapter 12 because the first place that Abraham goes to, first place after he is summoned, summoned to go to the place that I will show you, the place that he, first place that he goes and God appears to Abraham is in chapter 12 in verse number seven. In verse number six, chapter 12, verse six, Avram journeyed and came to the came to the place of Shechem, also known as Elon Moreh. The Canani were at that time in the land. God appears. Because God had said in the beginning of chapter 12, I will I will uh to walk to the place Asher Ar Echo, the place that I will show you. And God does show Abraham the place. That's in the seventh Pasuk, by Yerah Hashem Avram. And Avram brings a sack, builds an altar, by Yivan Shamizbeach, Rashem Hanirayrav, to the God who appeared to him. So three times we have the word to appear. And the place of God's appearance, the place of entry, is Shechem. That's a very important point. Shechem, in the story of Abraham and elsewhere, is the point of entry. And that's where Yeshua speaks to the people in chapter 24, and he speaks about Abraham's coming into the land. He's speaking in the very place that Abraham comes into the land. Anyway, to return to our theme over here, there are two ways to read the Abraham story in conjunction with Terah. One is to see Abraham as a break from Terah, <coughs> That's how Sefer Yoshua sees it. That's how the Midrash wants us to see it. On the other hand, an equally plausible, if not more plausible way, is to see Abraham essentially as the continuation of, uh, of Terach. Terach starts the journey. Abraham is told to walk. So he keeps walking in the direction that his father was walking because it says about Terach in the end of the previous chapter, Next to the last verse of the previous chapter, the intention of Terach, the initial intention, was to go to the land of Canaan. He stops. He dies in Haran. And now, Avram continues his journey. He walks in the same direction. We'll come back to that idea of walking in the same direction in a couple of minutes. So let's Rabbi pick up Silver? now with chapter 12. Yes. Rabbi Silver, there's a question in the chat from Wendy. Uh, she yes. asked, could the lack of Toledo, Toledo be almost a, uh, a suspense bit as much as so much of the tension in Abraham's, or Abraham and Abraham's life will be, will he have any told? I'm sorry if I didn't that's read that point. correctly. Yes, that's, that is a very, Wendy, that's a good point. It certainly is, it certainly is a live possibility. And yeah, I think that is true. That is actually you're 100% correct. That may be the key question in the Avram story. 
Uh, we'll come back to that on more than one occasion. That's a good point. Not mentioning the toldot at this point, but the word toldot is the way to hold us in a kind of, in, 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 uh, in, in suspense. And this will be a, probably one of the two primary themes of the Avram story. There are many sub-themes and subplots. That's an excellent point. The man's name There's is another... Avram. Yes. I'm sorry, there was another question, but if you're going to continue on that, go ahead. Go ahead. What's the question? I, go ahead. Uh, so Micah wrote, God didn't apparently ask Tarek to go to Canaan, so isn't that different? That's very different. Now, that is an important point. I mentioned that last week, that Tarek is not commanded to go. I mean, you can see that in, a, in, in actually in a very positive light. Somehow he has an intuition. It's not clear why he's going. It's true. We don't know why Tarek intended to go to Canaan. We have no idea. That was a question that was raised last week. And we simply don't know. But one way to read it certainly is to see it in a positive light. Somebody has a sense that he should be headed there. But the point is well taken that he doesn't actually, we, the reader can't, can't know. In the case of Avram, he's given a specific command. Although Avram is not told in verse number one why God wants him to go there. He, he's simply told, go to the place that I will show you. And then in verse number seven, God says, I will give you this land. You're going to the place that you will ultimately possess, despite the fact that in the previous verse, in verse 6, the Canaanites are presently in the land. But Avram doesn't know that in verse 1. So it's a kind of test of faith, one might say. Go to the place that I will show you, and I'm not telling you why. He's not told why. He's only told why after he gets there. And that's verse number 7, to come back to Wendy's point, one final point about that, that we are told in the previous chapter that Sarai, his wife, has no, has no children. But he, Sarai Akara in Ravala, she's Akara. Akara suggests perhaps even she can't have children, but she has no children. But the man's name is Avram, great father. And not only that, the promise in the first three verses is that I will make you big, I'll make you great and a great nation. And therefore, one wonders actually how that's going to happen because his wife has no children. He doesn't have another wife at this point. So how's that going to play out? Who's going to be his successor? And as we pick up now in verse number four, we'll see there's an additional problem. And that's chapter 12, verse number four. Avram went, uh, he goes, he, he was commanded and he goes, as God had commanded him to do, and Lot, that's his nephew. That's the son of his deceased brother Haran. We discovered that at the end of chapter 11. He also goes, and Avram was 75 years old. 75 years old, no children, and his nephew Lot, the son of his deceased brother, also goes So in conjunction with mentioning only Lot, because in the next verse, it's gonna mention other people that accompany Avram on his journey. But in, in verse number four, only Lot is mentioned. And not that Avram takes Lot in verse four, he So one can see Lot responding to God's command as well even though he himself wasn't commanded. The Lechucha was to Avram. Avram goes as God commanded, but Lot also goes. 
and in Avram is 75. So what the Torah is doing, presumably, is setting up Lot as a potential successor to Avram. It's not his son, that's true, but it is his nephew from a deceased brother. And we know from the Torah, in more than one place, the idea of leveret marriage, that if your brother was married and died and had no children, then the brother marries the wife of the deceased brother, and that the children born are considered not only your children, but your brother's children. And the line of your brother can be extended. So the link between uncle and nephew in the Torah can be very, very deep. It's like your son. The, the child born in the Yibum situation, one might say is simultaneously your child, but also your brother's child. So in the case over here, Haran died, we're told in chapter 11, and Lot uh, is that child. So potentially, at least, the great father who has no children, we, the reader, can see Lot as a, as a, as a possibility, as a possible heir. And this, I think, is borne out even or emphasized by the next verse, which is verse number five. It says, but there it says, Vayikach Avram et Sarai Ishto, v'yet Lot ben Achiv, v'yet kol rechusham asher rachashu, v'yet hanefesh asher rasu v'charan. So Avram took, and the list who, who Avram took, whom he took, he took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, all the possessions they had acquired, v'chusham asher rachashu, and then the strange expression, hanefesh asher asu v'charan, the souls asher asu v'charan. What does asu mean? So there's a question, the commentaries are divided about this. Does it refer to slaves that they purchased? Or does it refer to people, Asher Asubicharan, that they influenced, people that came with them? That possibly in this verse you can already see Avram and maybe Sarah as well as having an influence on other people, that he's coming into the land. That's the way the Midrash sees it, certainly. He comes into the land because he has an idea about, about God, a different idea about God, etc. And he has a kind of entourage. Later on in chapter 14, he has servants, he has disciples, he has pupils, he has all kinds of people around him. He's building something. But over here, it's not clear. In any event... But David, in, yes? in, in uh, ancient Semitic languages, asu, asa, has the meaning of acquisition, of acquire. Right. That's, That's what it probably means over here. Concrete meaning of the term, not did but acquire. Right, I agree. I think that the plain meaning it refers to people that he bought, slaves. I mean, he may acquire them and they may be his pupils as well. That's certainly a possibility. But yeah, so over here we have it's interesting, we have two consecutive verses. In the first verse, Oli wrote, he's described as going with. In verse number five, we have Avram taking Vayikach Avram, and we notice that Vayikach Avram, whom Avram took, we notice the parallel to chapter 11, verse number 31. In chapter 11, verse number 31, Vayikach Terach et Avram beno, v'yed Lot ben Haran ben beno, v'yed Sarai Kalato eshet Avram beno, Terach took ABC. He took Avram, he took Lot, 
he took Sarai. And interesting, by the way, is that and when we come back to Terah for a moment, hmm. he doesn't take his other son. He has three sons. One died, but he um, he died in Urkasdim. We're told. But what about the son Nachar? It doesn't say that Terach took him. So this also would reinforce the idea that Terach has something in mind more than just leaving a place, that Terach's going to Canaan prefigures Avram's going to Canaan because he takes Avram and Avram and Sarai and Lot, who can be seen already as connected to Avram, that's who Terach takes. He doesn't take all of them. He doesn't take Nachar. So once again, we can read Avram's journey as a simple continuation of Terach's journey. In any event, Lot was singled out, and Lot is an important character, obviously, in the Avram narrative. Um, what's interesting is actually something else over here, which we will keep in mind for ourselves. And this is just an important point about reading the Avram story and many other stories as well. We look always to see the order of things, how the Torah presents something. So over here, it's interesting. Avram took, takes his wife, she's first. He takes his nephew, Lot, potential heir, I would argue, second. Then the possessions, Ruchush, that's an important word in the Avram narrative. And the souls that they, let's say, acquired, purchased. But the souls they purchased presumably are more than just Rechush. Later on in chapter 14, when Avram goes to war, many of his people will accompany him in war. So therefore, I simply raise it as a question at this point to think about what is the significance of the fact that in listing whom Avram takes, it puts the Rechush, the possessions, the material possessions before it mentions the people. That's something to think about. Because the, one of the larger questions in this chapter and beyond is how we relate to people versus property. This is a very, always an important question. How we, what, it, what are the priorities in life? Is it material acquisition? Is it the personal connections? Is it people or is it property? And we will see this is a theme that runs through the first chapters of, of the Avram narrative. We'll get to that. In any event, Avram is going, Lot is going with him. Yes? Mary Silver, we have two questions in the chat, right. if I can, um, yeah, if this is okay. Uh, Cheryl asks, there is no evidence that Tarek was planning to go to Canaan, so wouldn't saying that he was there intending is to go... There is evidence, says explicitly. Black on white, chapter 11, verse number, 20, verse number 31, explicit. He was okay. set out to go to the land of Canaan. He is going to Canaan. He doesn't get there, okay. that's true, but he's... What's the second question? All right, the second question was from Neva. Might the idea of acquiring those souls have implications for who Eliezer ultimately is? I don't understand the question. Eliezer, well, we will get to Eliezer later on. Eliezer is mentioned in chapter 15 as a potential heir. That's a good point. In other words, one of those souls, it's not clear actually where Eliezer comes from. I mean, he's Eliezer of uh, Damascus. So one possibility is Damascus is also up north. One possibility is he's one of the souls that Avram brings with him. That's a possibility. There is another possibility, which we'll get to hopefully in a couple of weeks, 
that Eliezer comes from a different place. So let's leave that in abeyance. But yes, the larger question of succession, that is one of the primary questions. And Avram is 75 years old, so he's not a young man. Let's say he's middle-aged, but in the, in the biblical ages of Genesis, he's a middle-aged man. He's certainly not young. At 100, he's called old. So the point is, and he has no children. So this is a core question. We're raising some interesting questions just based on these few verses. Now, now let's continue. So the Knani are presently in the land, and Avram comes to Shechem, and the Torah says another name for Shechem is Elon Moreh. Now, why did the Torah say that? There is a good reason for it within the Avram narrative. We'll leave that in abeyance for now. But Shechem, as I mentioned earlier, is the point of entry. He comes to this place. The Canaanites are presently in the land. And in verse number seven, we have God appearing to Avram. So here we have the promise. Now we discover in verse number seven why God has instructed Avram in verse number one. There is a promise. On the other hand, the Canaanites were at that time in the land. That suggests to us that what Avram is not going to do is actually possess the land himself. Presumably, not that it would be impossible necessarily, but certainly a live possibility is there was a promise for the future, not necessarily that Avram will be the one to physically possess the land. Perhaps Avram's role is to symbolically possess the land, which I believe is the case. But again, the reader was starting out pretending we know nothing except what we have before us, and we don't know. But the Canaanites are presently in the land, and God says, attain in the future. I will give you what the Zarecha actually says, not to you. Your descendants will possess the land. So what Avram's role is, is a good question, and we'll see. Meanwhile, Avram keeps traveling. Vayatek mishamahara, mikedem l'veitel vayet he keeps traveling. He's traveling in a southerly direction, actually. And it says he pitched his tent um, east of Beit El. Beit El is to the west. And Ai, the city of Ai, in, in the east. And he builds another altar. It's the second altar that Avram builds. Vayiven Shem Mizbeach, Rashem. Vayikra b'shem Hashem, but in the second place, the first altar it simply says he builds an altar. In the second place, he not only builds an altar, but Vayikra b'shem Hashem. He, what does Vayikra b'shem Hashem mean? Let's see. Here, here it says he invokes the Lord by name, Vayikra b'shem Hashem. I want to take a moment here to reflect on this expression. We know that the Midrashim uh, emphasize that Avram calling out to God is a kind of public calling out to God. It's an attempt to proclaim God in the world. And the Midrash sees that Avram is a kind of uh, recruiter for God. He's one who sees his mission as bringing people close to God. Uh, and um, 
probably part of in the Midrash, the idea of Avram being Gadol. It says the blessing to Avram, and it's very striking, is that you will be big, a big nation, a great nation, Goy Gadol. I will make your name big. I'll make your name great. And now if I grew up B'Shem Hashem, he's calling out God's name. And furthermore, the third verse of chapter 12, through you, will the families of the, of, of the earth uh, bless, be, be blessed. So Avram's mission seems to be way beyond just his own nation. But the mission of Avram, as intimated in the first verses of chapter 12, is to be a light to, to, to the whole world. One might say in this way also, a kind of response to the previous narrative of the Torah, which is the Tower of Babel. Previous narrative was chapter 11, the first nine verses, Migdal Babel. There the world gathers together under one banner, the banner being Mikedem in the east, which is a negative, and the banner is Babel, the banner is Shinar, the banner is Nimrod, the banner is Cham. That's the problem with Migdal Babel, one of the problems. Some people think the problem with Migdal Babel was there was no diversity. You didn't have a pluralistic society. And there might be something to that. But the primary problem with Migdal Babel is not the lack of diversity. The problem with Migdal Babel fundamentally is that everybody gathers together under the banner of Babel, under the banner of Shinar, under the banner of Nimrod. So it's not just not diversity, you're gathering together under the wrong kind of, of, uh, of leadership, under Cham, under the cursed ones. In the case of Avram, he is to establish his own distinct identity, which has implications for the world. That's the blessing. So in that sense, Avram is Godol. He's very big and he calls out one can see the calling out to God as a positive, as an attempt to proclaim God in the world. Having said all that, and I believe that to be the case. It would, it would seem to, to recapitulate Enosha's calling out to God. It uses the same exact language. It uses it. It appears in several places. Actually, even more to the point is probably B'Tzalel. B'Tzalel ben Uri ben so there, it's about designation, actually. It is true that with Moshe and Yud Gimel Midot, we have Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. It's not actually totally clear who is the Vayikra B'Shem Hashem in those verses, whether God is calling God's name or Moshe is. It be read either way, but let's assume it's Moshe. Uh, yeah, it could be. It, it, that is a good point. We have to analyze the relationship between the calling out in the story of the Yom Midot in Exodus 34, and over here, okay, well, I'll put that aside for now, but in terms of, I just another point I wanted to make, someone emailed me during the week about this, I think it was Fran Schifrin, and thank you for that email. Um, it is interesting that the expression to call out in God's name appears earlier in the book of Bereshit in chapter 4. Look back at chapter 4, this is quite interesting actually. Um, chapter 4, yes, the end of chapter 4, Breshit, the end of chapter 4, so there it says, um, there it says, Ulusheit kam hu yulad ben sheit, that's the third son of Adam and Eve, 
a child was born to Shait, Vayikrat Shemo Enosh, and he named him Enosh. Enosh is another meaning of Adam, person, Anashim, the plural. Then, then people began to invoke the Lord by name. Now, what is very curious about this is that if you look at the Medrash and the commentaries, especially the older commentaries on that verse, you will see that us who Hashem is taken for the most part by mainstream tradition as something very negative. Then people began to call things God. People began to call objects God. People began to call things other than God, God. And even play with the word that is which profane or, 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 or degraded. Rabbi so, Hashem, that's taken as a negative. Yes. The Art Scroll translation is then to call in the name of Hashem became profaned. Profane. That's what I just said. Exactly. So Art Scroll is probably Rashi. Art Scroll usually follows Rashi, actually. Um, the Art Scroll on the Talmud does the same thing. Um, usually goes with Rashi, but it's not just Rashi. There is a whole tradition behind seeing that verse as a as the negative, which is very strange, because there's nothing, when you read the verse, it doesn't appear to be negative at all. People began to call out in God's name. What is driving the Medrash? So what's interesting is, and what Fran emailed me during the week, and I, anybody wants to email me, if I try to respond to the emails. Um, in chapter 10, in chapter 10, you have Nimrod, and let's find Nimrod. Nimrod is in chapter 10. Um, you have in chapter 10, Kush Yolatit Nimrod, Kush being the oldest son of Cham, chapter 10, verse number eight. Kush begat Nimrod. Hu heichel liyot gibar ba'aretz. Hu heichel. He was the first. He began, like the word hatchala. He began, he was the first to be a great, a, a great warrior in the in 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 in, in the earth. Hashem. He was a great hunter before God. People would say like Nimrod, the great hunter Bavel. First king. And his first kingship was Babel. Nimrod, it's fair to say is a negative character. The very name itself, Nimrod. The Torah is not crazy about hunters. And what does it mean to be a hunter before God? And the bubble connection has to be a negative. So it's interesting, it, the Torah introduces him with the word, who heichel, liyot kibar sayid, liyot kibar ba'aretz. And what's interesting is that in the Parashat Noach, we have another chapter, that another story that begins with heichel, and that is chapter nine. In chapter nine, Vayachel Noach Ish Adama, Vayita Karem. Noah, the tiller of the soil, Hechel, 
perhaps the first, as the JPS translates, the first began, the first to plant a vineyard. And the planting of the vineyard gets him drunk and the drunkenness gets him uncovered. And that's the story of the blessing and the curse, the blessing of shame and the curse of Cham or the curse of Canaan. So in both of those stories, the, for whatever reason, Hechel, which is related to Huchal, is a negative. The Midrash is seeing something about the word Huchal, Hechel, and this is a, a, a larger conversation, which I think we'll come back to. But the Ramban, Nachmanides, who often in his great commentary, tries to reconcile rabbinic tradition with the plain meaning of the text, offers the following interpretation of Wikro B'Shem Hashem. Oz Wikro B'Shem Hashem, so the Ramban says, then it, people began to call out God's name. The Ramban says to call out God's name is positive. As we see in our chapter, in chapter 12, that Avram is Korei B'Shem Hashem. But the Ramban says, what's negative is, then it became necessary to call out in God's name. Why was there a need for people to publicly affirm God? Answer, because there must have been other people who were publicly going in a completely opposite direction. So, says the Ramban, he preserves both the plain meaning of the Torah and the rabbinic tradition. With the birth of Enosh, of this person, Shait, the word shait, by the way, means to be given something, but the word shait in biblical Hebrew means foundation. Shait, in fact, is the foundation of all humanity because the two brothers, Cain and Hevel, Hevel's dead, and Cain's line is, is not going to succeed. Cain's line will die out, as it were, before the flood or during the flood. Shait will live on. Enosh is human. So in the beginning of humanity, in chapter 4, it then becomes necessary to call out in God's name, says the Ramban. Already humanity, humankind is divided. Different people have different ideas about, about this world and its purpose, its meaning, etc. And Avram then, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, we preserve the positive of Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. We will come back to Vayikra B'Shem Hashem again in the Avram narrative, but simply to point out something interesting in chapter 12, and that is, that Avram has built already one altar in Shechem. There it doesn't say he calls out in God's name. When he comes to the second place, which the Torah identifies as proximate to Beit El, God's house, there he builds an altar and calls out in God's name. When Avram then is about to, to veer off and go to the land of Egypt, and we'll get to that story shortly, we'll begin it today, and then he returns from Egypt in chapter 13. In chapter 13, he goes back, we're told, after he comes back out of Egypt, in chapter 13, he comes with his possessions. And in chapter 13, verse number four, he returns Oham Makom, and Makom HaMizbeach Asher He returns to the altar that he had made prior, which is in Beitel, or near Beitel, he again calls the in God's name in that same place. And then the end of chapter 13, he takes another journey. He goes to Hebron. At the end of chapter 13, 
when he goes to Hebron, he builds an altar. So in the initial journeys of Avram, there were three places. There is Shem, there is Beit El, we'll call it Beit El, and there is, and there is Hebron. In stop one and stop three, he builds an altar, does not call out in, in, in God's name. In stop number two, Beit El, he builds an altar and calls out B'Shem Hashem. And not only that, when he comes back out of Egypt, he returns to that very same place and once again calls out in God's name. So obviously, there's something going on here about calling out in God's name. We will hold that in abeyance for now. And as we proceed through the Avram story, we will return to this idea of calling out in God's name and what it might signify. In any event, Avram is on the journey, the Lech Lecha. And now we come to chapter 12, verse number... Rabbi Silver? Yes. Sorry, there was a question in the chat um, Could the, from Gitti. She asks, could the idea of Adam naming various creatures by be driving the Midrash of naming Hashem by recognizing their natures? Is Avram the first to correctly recognize Hashem and thus call out in his name? Correctly call out in his name? Well, we have this earlier of calling out B'Shem Hashem, as I mentioned in chapter four. Um, the, the question that you, I mean, the question is, what does it mean to call out in God's name? Presumably, I mean, I, I'd like to leave that for now because not that it's not a good question. It is a very important question. For, I mean, the way the Midrashim see it, I don't mean to say Midrash is not the Pshat. It could be what it means. It's saying something about God. You had this, and what uh, what was mentioned earlier, um, that with Moshe, Vayikra B'Shem HaShem, and there you have very explicitly a uh, a description of God. HaShem HaShem Elachum V'chanun Erech HaPayim V'Rav Chesed V'Yamet. There you have, more than any other place, a kind of description, at least of God's attributes, of God's way in the world. So Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, presumably, if he's calling, proclaiming God, it's what Moshe asked God in the beginning of Sefer Shvot. When the people say, when I tell the people God will redeem you, they will ask me, what is his name? Which means, what is his nature? What's his essence? How can we understand this God? What can we understand? So the name and the, and the, and the meaning are, are bound together. Remember, the book of Reshit is a book in which names are very important. Avram was told, I will make your name big. Avram's going to get a different name. Sarai gets a different name. Yaakov gets a different name. Name is, name is identity. Name is not an accident in this book. So the point is well taken. To call out in God's name does suggest saying something about this God. What it is, we don't know that Avram said. But he may well have said something about the nature of this God. That's how the Midrashim understand it. This God is different. There's other. That's an important point. We'll return again at some future point being Koreh B'Shem Hashem. In the remaining time, I'd like to... Yes? I mean, the importance you can see already from Adam, by Adam Shemot. Right, that was someone just made that point, yes. Yeah, and also Migdal Bavel also about Naselan Hashem. That's right. The story of Adam naming the animals is very interesting because there it says that Adam was, Adam names all the animals, and after he names all the animals, the Torah says, Ul Adam, lo matza ezer 
what it sounds like is after he names the animals, the naming is to give them as, uh, to understand their, their, their true identity. And only after he understands the true identity, he comes to the conclusion that they're not for me. We are done with Motsa connect though in the Torah follows the naming actually. So that is a further, uh, you know, support for the idea that the name is actually who, is actually who you are. But that, that's a very important point in the, in the book. Yes, in Babel, it's about Nasalanu shame, and there it carries with it various significances. I don't want to go back to that now, but uh, okay, let us, let us, let's now get to chapter. In the remaining time, we'll start today, the Avram and the wife-sister business. There are three such stories in the book of Breshit, the first of which is this chapter 12. And before we get to the sister stories, where Avram will say that Sarai is his sister, we have little verse number nine. And Avram continued to travel in a southerly direction. Now that verse actually is not as innocent as one might think. I mean, there are no innocent verses, so let's start with that. But it actually raises a very interesting question because we know that Terach started walking towards Canaan. Avram continues the journey. God says to Avram, I will give you this land. That's in chapter, uh, right here in, uh, in verse number seven. And Avram is journeying in the same direction. At verse number nine, he keeps going south. In verse number 10, there's a famine. By Yered Avram Mitzrayim And Avram just is going down to Egypt. So the question is, how do you read these, this verse? In other words, how do we understand Avram going to Mitzrayim, which is a puzzler to begin with, given the fact that he's well aware of what awaits him in the land of Egypt? He says it to his wife. We're going to a terrible place. If they know you're my wife, they may kill me, and they're going to keep you alive, which is not a positive, by the way, keeping her alive in Mitzrayim. It's bad for me, probably bad for you, and therefore... We need to have, we need, we need a plan. He has a plan, a good plan, a bad plan, we'll see. But, but is that basically, do you see Avram is basically understanding the message? I'm going to give you this land. This is where he wants to be. But something happens in verse number 10, there's a famine and he feels he has to go. Or is it to be read differently? He's traveling north to south. He keeps traveling south. Well, if you keep traveling south, you're going to end up in the land of, 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 of you end up in, in the, in the Mitzrayim. And that's a different way to read the story. To read the story is it's not something that suddenly something happens and he takes this step, which was just out of, which was inconceivable to him, but rather this is the direction in which he's traveling. And I would add, it's the direction his father was traveling. He said, he picks up where his father left off. His father's mistake was stopping short and his mistake is going too far. It's, it's sort of the flip side of what Terach does. That's a different way to read the story. The truth is, I don't think we can tell for sure. <clears throat> I think it's unclear. It is interesting that the Parsha ends after verse number nine. The little pay over there. So that would suggest a break. He's going to stay in the land. The land that God told, told, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. But something happens, the famine, where he feels because of the famine, he is required to or justified in going to Mitzrayim. Whether he is or not justified, we'll get to momentarily. 
those are two different ways to read the stone. So verse number nine is actually very interesting. He's keeping, he's keeping trace, traveling on the same trajectory. And that would be, and which means that, not surprisingly, he doesn't yet fully grasp the meaning of God's message. He will grasp it later in the second Lechachot, the Akedah, there he understands everything. But at this point in his career, he doesn't fully grasp it. And there's something else here, which I wanted to emphasize about chapter 12. In contradistinction to chapter 22, which is the other Lechachot, Kedah Yitzchak is Lechachot. That in that story of the Akedah, there's also a blessing. Chapter 12 starts with a blessing. The Akedah ends with a blessing. etc. But in chapter 12, the blessing is in the very, if you go into the land, I will bless you. So therefore, there's an incentive for Avram to go. God gives him an incentive. I'm going to show you the place. I'm going to exactly where to go. When you get there, I'm going to tell you. And there's a blessing from the very beginning. So he has to be incentivized, which also suggests he's not fully there yet. At the Akeda, there's no incentive. There's a command. At the end of the test, he's told you have a blessing. So that, I think, is an important point. With, this is not a critique of Avram so much as it's, the, it's, a, it's a story. It's, it's the beginning. It's about it learning. It's about it, his experience. He's going to learn something through the experience. And we all always learn more from our failures than our successes. Rabbi Silver? Yes? You know, if it, uh, it doesn't say, Vaisa Avraham Anekba. It says, Vaisa Avraham Aloch Venasoa, which, uh, you know, the Hebrew um, resonates in my ear like, a quest for something like he's he's searching for something. It's it's right, a that process. Was what I said, actually, so yeah. maybe he doesn't know exactly what what does it mean. Aretz Azot. Yes, I, I, I actually agree with that. I think that Halof Benasoa suggests that he's a search, perhaps. Or I I, I thought it more generally. He keeps on traveling. He's keeping on moving. He's not doesn't understand fully the meaning of this is. The place. Okay, we'll understand it later, but not at this point. Uh, now let's take a look. Let's begin. Here, here, here he seems to be in Terach mode, and according to, to, to what's in front of him, he's making a move. He hasn't been told the limits of what he's going to be given. Maybe good it point. includes that Egypt. As well. That's right. But he made the Terach move in the wrong direction. Terach move was in the right direction. He stopped short, but. <coughs> Okay, let's continue. Rabbi, I was wondering something actually from last week because you're, you're talking about Hashem is kind of incentivizing Abraham and he's saying, you, um, I'll make your name great. But um, the previous Parsha with um, with the Tower of Babel, uh, they want to, their name to be great and that was a negative. So why is God, God making this sound like a great positive when last week it was a great negative? Because there's a difference between me making my own name great and you making my name great. Okay. God making my name great means I will make your name great. <coughs> I'm the one who's going to make you great, which suggests a kind of demand or a kind of a kind of purpose, and and there's a goal. When I say I'm going to make my own name great, and I'm also going to determine the place, the people of Babel determine the sacred place, but the point is that in the Bible you never determine the sacred place; only God determines it. So the, the Migdal Babel story, I would say the parallels to Migdal Babel underscore the, the difference between the two stories. 
you can only you distinguish two things that have some similarities, some commonalities. If they're radically different, you can't distinguish them. The Torah wants us to distinguish Migdal Babel, the word Gadol there as well, from, from Agad Shemecha, etc. Let's begin at least now the story of Avram's descent into Egypt. And we'll continue with this next week. Vahira of Baaretz in verse number 10. There are three sister stories in Genesis. This is the first of the three. There was a famine. And Avram went down. He didn't get there yet. He's going down to Mitzrayim. He's headed to Egypt. For the famine was kaved, was heavy. Interesting, by the way, as an aside, <coughs> that the word kaved, heavy, is a word that appears many, many times in different forms in the story of the Exodus. Etc. Paro's heart is heavy in the book of Exodus. So in this story, the descent to Mitzrayim, which prefigures the Exodus, we begin with the word Kaved. So Avram is intending to go to Mitzrayim, not just a famine, but a heavy famine. That's verse number 10. He's on the way there, he's traveling. As he's about to come, he's close to Mitzrayim. He said to his wife, Sarai, I have come to know that you are a beautiful woman. I'll get back to that in a moment. When the Egyptians see you and they say, this is this man's wife, they will kill me, keep you alive. Say, please, you are my sister. In order that it go well for me on, your, on account of you, and I live thanks to you. That's Avram's request. So we have to spend a fair amount of time on this. Uh, let me say the first point is, I find it interesting that Avram is already going to Egypt. The verse says, Avram He's traveling towards Mitzrayim, and now we're traveling towards Mitzrayim, he's close. When he became close. Then he asks his, says to his wife, Sorai, please, he says very uh, politely, please say you're my sister because I've come to know you are very beautiful, etc. Of course, what's interesting is, you would have expected the order to be a little different. Bahira of Baris, there's a famine in the land, and then Avram says to Sarai, I'm thinking of going to Egypt, could be dangerous. Would you please say, if we go there, you are my sister. But the Chumash doesn't present it that way, actually. It presents him, and even earlier, he's already traveling to Mitzrayim. He's about, you know, he's about maybe a a mile away or something. And then he turns to his wife and says, you know, you're a very beautiful woman. And they, when we get to Egypt, which is right around the corner, they may kill me and keep you alive. Say, please, you're my sister. But what he doesn't actually, the way it's set up, that's part of keeping it traveling south. It sounds like he's basically there. You know, sometimes we ask a question, should I do X? But you're very determined to do it. So he sounds like he's, he's already made the decision to go to Mitzrayim. 
I don't mean in his head, I mean in his feet and his head, he's, he's, he, he grieved, he's very close. So I think there's something about that which is a bit problematic. But let's get to the basic point over here, at least raise the question, which is the obvious question. What do we make of the fact that Avram is about to go to, to Mitzrayim? When God said, to the place that I will show you. Here, I would say that the commentaries, let's say the, the medievals, I mentioned two in particular, are very troubled by, are, are troubled by the story. And they take two different approaches. One is to try to apologize or defend Avram's behavior. And the other is to, uh, to uh, critique it. So I'll mention there are two well-known commentaries that deal with this problem. One, of course, is the Ramban on the, on the Torah, Nachmanides' great commentary on the Torah, who actually critiques Avram. He says, I know that our father Abraham sinned in, in, in two different ways. That's Ramban. And then there's a lengthy defense of our apology for Abraham. Sometimes the apologies solve one problem but create others. And that's by the Ran. Rabbeinu Nisim, in a very important book called Drashot Haran, the Drashot of the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, great book. And one of the Drashot is an extended commentary on the story over here. And he tries to defend Abraham's behavior. It's interesting, he feels it necessary to defend it. So obviously he's bothered by the story. So I wanted to, without getting all the details of the Ran and the Ramban, to at least pose the questions or suggest what Avram uh, is thinking. And um, what I'll suggest is not fully in the Ran or the Ramban, it's my own understanding of the story, but it plays off the Ran, Ran and the Ramban uh, in, uh, in, in a certain sense. Um, the Ramban critiques Avram for, for two reasons. He says, first of all, he put his wife in, the, in, the, in the danger. He put his wife in danger. He may think that what he's doing will protect her, but in point of fact, it doesn't work for reasons we'll see next week. It doesn't actually protect her. Uh, and secondly, the Ramban says, interestingly enough, he had no permission to leave. He was told to go to the land that I will show you, the land of the Kanani, and he had no permission to, to leave the land. Go to the place that I will show you. If you do X, I will bless you. The Ramban sees that as a command to go to that place and not to leave it. <clears throat> so the very leaving of the place is for the Ramban a sin. And I would add to the Ramban something that we find all the time in other biblical texts and in life. When we find ourselves in, in the wrong place, it usually leads to a host of other problems. That's the Ramban. <clears throat> The Ran tries to defend the Ram, the Rambam, the the, 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 Rambam. the Ran tries to defend Abraham. And um, look, there was a famine. He went there temporarily. It's a temporary move. He doesn't see the command to go to the land as you can't leave it. That's where you're going to be. But okay, temporarily you leave because you have no food. And not just a famine, a heavy famine. Logur means temporary residence. And he had a plan. So for the Ran, the plan is the following. The plan is that, say you're my sister. We know that in the Bible, often the brother, say the story of Ravan, the brother negotiates for the unmarried sister. You have it with, with Rivka, that Ravan is the negotiator. 
So his thinking is, listen, people are going to, you're very beautiful. People are going to want to marry you. They're going to come to me to negotiate. They're going to give me bribes, as people sometimes do in the political world, influenced. So we've heard of such things, such stories. Um, and I will be given all kinds of gifts in order to secure you. And then the Ron says, after, and I'm not going to agree with anybody, they'll keep giving me gifts, bidding against each other. And then when the famine seems to be easing, <coughs> we'll catch the first train out of, out of, uh, out of uh, Mitzrayim. That's the Ram's uh, defense of Abraham. He in no way intended for her to be taken. He didn't want her to be taken, which I think is certainly the case. But he's also understanding something else that with all of these gifts he's gonna be given as the person to speak to in order to marry the sister, that's it will go well for me. In other words, the Ram himself, I don't remember if he says means because say you're my sister, that it go well for me and I live. What does it mean that it go well for me? So you could interpret that it go well for me in that I live. That's one way to read it. Rashi didn't read it that way. Rashi understood they'll give me gifts. And the reason Rashi says that <coughs> is because of verse number 16. Sarah was taken by Paro. We'll get to that next week. Uri Avram Hetiv Bavura, and for Avram it went well. What does it mean it went well for him? Sonu Bakar Bachamorim, he was given sheep and oxen and slaves, male slaves, female slaves, camels. It went well for him materially. Didn't go well for her. So Lamani Tavri Bavurech can be read in terms of two, which is material goods. So Avram coins to the Ran is saying, or following his interpretation, say you're my sister. And there'll be two benefits. One is that I'll live <coughs> and you'll survive. And the second benefit is, as Rashi puts it, and they'll also give me gifts. It is interesting to note, coming back to the way we began this morning, and we'll have to stop at this point, that in the positioning of the two things, if we presume Yitavri is material goods, and the second is, and I will live, that Avram mentions the goods before he mentions living, which raises once again this question, which is the larger question of the story, material goods versus survival. And we have to remember that material goods, in this case, Avram is told he's gonna to build a nation. To build a nation, you need resources. You can't build it without, without material resources. So, <coughs> so uh, he needs that. He needs two things. He needs resources and he needs an heir, a successor. Sarah doesn't provide him with the, with the heir. She has no children. So he's got to look elsewhere for a successor. Maybe it's Lot, maybe not. But he also does need the resources. So has a very specific meaning in the case of Abraham. So where do we stand over here? Next week, I'd like to explore the story, spend all, all of next week, it's more than one week maybe, but we'll, to explore the sister stories in Genesis, in particular the story over here. And it's, what this, these sessions are about are not just about Abram itself, it's not about reading. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of reading the stories. And next week I want to emphasize a, a way of reading. 
So if any questions or comments, I'll take them now and we will continue hopefully next week. Yes, please speak up. I have a, a, a question both with this story and later with Avimelech that yes. Sarah is so beautiful though. Here, if I, my math is correct, she's 65 years old. Later with That's Avimelech, right. she's 90 years old. That's right. So, so she's not exactly a hot young- Spring chicken, right. A, a, right. a babe, a hot babe. Right. Okay, you're asking a very important question. Let me ask, um, I will answer the question in good Jewish uh, tradition by posing another question. <laughs> In chapter 26, we have the third sister story, Isaac and Rebecca. Mm -hmm. We don't know how old Rebecca is. She may have been young. What we do know in chapter 26 follows chapter 25. He said, this is my sister. But in chapter 25, <coughs> we're told Rebecca gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. So when he comes down, goes to the land of the Philistines in chapter 26, if it follows in chronological order, he has the twins. This is my sister. This is my, this is me. These are our two children and my sister. Hello? What? <laughs> How does that make any sense? If he had raised, they have two kids. <clears throat> so you're asking a very important question and it requires a longer answer. But the point is, I don't think it's a question the Torah wants us to ask actually. Oh, In other words, I don't think you're 100% right, of course, that it actually, you know, and the, um, the Medrash picks up on this. Sarah dies 127. <coughs> she was as beautiful as 100 as she was at, at whatever, at 20 or whatever. But the point is that the way these narratives work, they require at certain points kind of suspension of, uh, suspension of, uh, of, of, of belief. It requires a kind of uh, disbelief. And yeah, I mean, we can ask a lot of questions. We can also ask how Avram in chapter 14, after his nephew Lot is captured, chases after the four kings from where he is to all the way past Damascus with his band of 318 uh, soldiers or confidants or whatever. And he uh, attacks the four most powerful kings in the world in a lightning strike. He's gotta be at that point, who knows how old, we meet him when he's 75, so he's much older. Uh, how is that? It seems rather uh, implausible or rather uh, incredible, I would say. How can we understand it? You can always explain, yes, God's help, of course, that's all true. But it's a question I think the, the Torah doesn't want you to ask. You suspend your disbelief because it's not actually about what takes place. That's the truth of it, in my view. It's not about that, it's not a history. These are moral teachings, moral lessons, and there are questions we don't ask. There are other questions in the text we can ask, we should ask, and the question is to know when the Torah invites the question and when it doesn't. So your point is well taken. The best I can say is that, yes, it's a 100% good question, but the Torah thinks that's not a question we're going to ask. And it's true in the, in, in, in the book of Breshit, it's true elsewhere, Book of the Book of Shmuel, which I spent a fair amount of time on. Yes, you just, yes, it's there. Yes, there were contradictions. There are many contradictions in the Bible. What to make of them is a good question. 
but it doesn't take away from the story. The, the Torah is about teaching us, trying to teach us something. So it uses various means at its, at its disposal. One is typologies. There are three sister stories, okay? And the intention of the sister stories is to read them together and to learn something and the difference. Each one is very different, as we will see. So, okay, I'll stop at this point. Then, and, yes. So does the Torah invite the question, what, is, what was Sarah's answer or respond? Right, she doesn't, well, she doesn't say, she doesn't say anything. So we, we know that he, later on, Paolo says to Abram, why did you say that she's my sister? She sees that she was, she, that she didn't say no. She didn't say no. And that's important. But we'll get to Sarah's place in general, which is one of the critical issues of the whole story, your namesake. And that is that, you know, what is her role here? And what is she, you know, she is capable of speaking up as we will see in chapter 16, where she gives him a mouthful, but we'll, we'll get to that later on. Okay, I'll stop at this point. We'll continue next week with the story. Good, okay. okay thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much, Rabbi Silver. And just a, a quick housekeeping, I guess. Well, first, thank you for joining us today on Zoom. And for those of us, those of you who are watching Andresha Live and on Facebook, don't miss out on Andresha's other fall classes that continue all week long. Uh, we're actually starting as soon as 1 p.m. this afternoon. So today with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier, what his class is titled, What Does the Divine Image Look Like? Perspectives from Chazal. So um, be prepared. Today's class is going to be discussing uh, two discussions in Chazal that connect humanity's creation in the divine image to issues of race and religion. So uh, true to Jerusha's mission, we're trying to stay relevant and uh, offer thought-provoking classes on Tanakh, Jewish thought, and Halakha in light of what's going on in the world. So I do hope that you'll learn with us, learn more at Jerusha. If you haven't yet registered for these classes, there is still time. For more information, visit our website, www.drisha.org forward slash classes. All the Zoom, Facebook Live, and Drisha Live links are all posted on each class. And if you want to catch up on the first sessions of the classes or the previous sessions of the classes, you can find them on our website, drisha.org, uh, including this one. We'll be there as well. Hover over the online library and click on the option for recorded classes. So thank you again, Rabbi Silver, for this great class. I'm happy to have had this opportunity to learn with you today. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. And I hope to see you all same time, same place. And uh, hopefully next week and um, or actually hopefully sooner in any of our other online classes very soon. Take care. Be well. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.